Would you open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 6? If you're using one of the ones provided for you, I think it's page 762. We're in a series in the Gospel of John. Uh, We're going through what John calls the signs of Christ in his Gospel. Those are the miracles that Christ did. And uh, John says, hey, Jesus did a bunch of miracles and a bunch of signs, but I've given you these seven so that you could know who he is. That's the reason John's carefully selected seven miracles. He calls them signs so that we could know who Christ is and what he means And that's why he calls them signs. He's the only one who does that because he doesn't want us to get distracted by the actual act itself. He wants us to look at that act in consideration of the person who did it and then draw a conclusion about Christ. And this morning, we're in the fourth sign, which is commonly called the feeding of the 5,000, which is, it's it's a big deal. Every, it's the only sign, in fact, that besides the resurrection of Christ that shows up in all four Gospels. So all four Gospel writers uh, seem to think about this day as a pretty important day uh, of what the Lord did. So what I'd like to do is I'll read through it, and then, um, and then we'll get going. I'm looking at John chapter 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes, then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up from, and filled 12 baskets with the fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Let me pray, Lord. Bless the way your words heard and understood this morning. Make us especially uh, free, uh, I ask, 
to hear you and to respond. Lord, we know that even, even those of us in Christ are not who ultimately you, you're making us to be. We are in need of change. Um, so allow us, allow us to welcome you into that work. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, like I said, this is the sign. And there are four occasions for this. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all give descriptions of this. John's description uh, actually is quite unique when you finally get to the words of Christ. I don't know if you remember last week I said, what is a sign comprised of? It's the actual sign itself. It's the setting in which this takes place. And then it's the words that are adjoined to it. And John records words of Christ connected to the sign, which... uh, make it singular among the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And those words, oddly enough, happen a day later. So we haven't actually read the words. We read the sign itself. And then this is the way, way it happens. is A little bit later, verse 16, uh, this is the Jesus walks on water. It's actually the very next sign. This is next Sunday. This picks up in verse 16 where Jesus crosses the water to join the disciples in the boat. And then the next morning... All the people that had been fed, they wake up and they notice that Jesus is gone. They see that a boat is gone and they figure, let's go find them. And so they arrive, they jump in boats and they arrive on the other side of the lake and there's Jesus and uh, this is what ensues. Okay, here's the words, what I'm going to read is the words of Christ that are actually connected to the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, it's what, this is the words that John wants to give meaning to the sign, they're only happening a day later. Look at verse 25. So they've found Jesus, right? When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you Ate your fill of loaves. You see what he's saying? He's calling them out. He's identifying in their spirits, the people who came, that one of the real reason they're following after Jesus is not because they want to know more about the man. It's because they're hungry. And the thought is, if he can do dinner, I bet he can do breakfast too. Right? I mean, there's the thought of, there is this idea, which I think all of us can connect to, of going to the Lord for what the Lord will give us. And, and he calls them right out. He says, he immediately points to that and says, that's not what following looks like. You didn't come here to learn about me. You came here to take something from me. They continue. Uh, he continues in verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? You see this? Is that ironic? 
given yesterday? Yesterday, he feeds 5,000 people. The crowd swoons and mobs and says, surely this is the prophet. That's not an accidental phrase. That's a, that's a phrase that reaches back to, I think, the 18th chapter of Deuteronomy, which, where Moses says, there's going to be a prophet who comes after me who's far greater than me. They're meeting at Passover. All of this is happening at the same time. So they're saying it's amidst the Passover season that Jesus does this, and they're saying this must be the prophet that we've been waiting for for thousands of years, over a thousand years. And then today they're saying, what sign are you going to give us to prove who you are? Which again is typical Can you still remember your atheism when you'd see God, but then you'd have to see him again? Or your agnosticism? You know, you see the Lord. This is before you were who you are, but on the way to who you are. Or you'd see the Lord do a thing, but have no problem turning around to the Lord and saying, what are you going to do to show me who you are? He says, I'm saying it's, we're more like this than unlike this. So they say to him, what sign are you going to do? And then they begin to kind of throw Moses at him. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Well, I'll stop there. Because this shows... this shows the direction John is taking the sign. So all of what we read here about the feeding of the 5,000, ultimately, in, in John's mind, what he wants us to see when we come to this sign is it ends with Jesus alone can satisfy our eternal appetite. That every other thing that we partake in, every other, every other food or fancy or dream or hope, it can only satisfy our appetite for a moment, but it will eventually give way to hunger. There is no way for the human to find lasting satisfaction in this world apart from Jesus Christ. This is, uh, this is what's on the right side of the equal sign. I mean, this is John saying, this is what, when you see this sign, this is what you should see. You should see that Jesus alone furnishes the food of eternal life. And that food is him. He's giving himself so that people might live. So what I want to do is I want to take that idea and I want to bring it back into the story. And then we can, we can see or observe what we can learn at, on the way to that idea. And so look with me in the first three verses. You see this. You see this image of Jesus. It says Jesus went away to the other side, the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large, large crowd followed when you read the other gospel accounts, this is actually what happens. Jesus is actively trying to withdraw from the crowd 
And he gets in a boat and he crosses the sea. That's the thought. Incidentally, this miracle is happening immediately after the 12 disciples return to see Jesus again, after having been sent out two by two. The Lord sent them out two by two, and they all come back. They're all returning back to see Jesus, and there's this, this excitement, and they want to visit with Jesus, and they want to spend time with Jesus, but the crowds, there's so many crowds. Imagine being one of the 12 and having a hard time getting to Christ himself. That's the situation. This is what Mark says about this moment. He says this. This is Jesus speaking. He says, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. Jesus is saying this to his disciples. And then Mark writes, for many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. So you have the 12 who have returned from their missionary journey. They've cast out demons. They've healed the lame. They've cured the blind. They've done, I mean, imagine in your mind, imagine if you were one of those 12, all the things you would want to talk to Jesus about. Imagine the questions you have. The questions that come up in the heart of, of real discipleship, of really proclaiming, you know, Lord, I did it here and it didn't work, but it worked there, and do we always do it? I mean, just imagine that you go away and you get to experience the power of the Lord working through you, you finally come back and you can't even hardly get to Jesus because of the crowd, because he's doing it with style. I mean, he's drawn all men to himself. And so this is an occasion where what they end up doing is they get in a boat, and the other gospels kind of amplify this. They get in a boat and they cross, they cross the sea. It's not a big, it's not a sea, okay? It's a big lake. So as they're crossing the Sea of Galilee... The crowd watches from the shore, and they're, hey, Jesus is going over there. And they hustle along the shoreline. It says they run. They're running along the shoreline to rendezvous with Jesus when he lands. So Jesus has made an effort to withdraw to be with his disciples, just to have some time with them. And he looks out, and the crowd is following. That is, to me, that is a, a very odd and emotional thought. What do you do? Do you want to spend time? You want to drill deep? You, you really want to carve away with these disciples and hone and work on what's happening? I mean, it's not like Jesus is taking a vacation. He was, he was broad, right? He was reaching wide, and now he's going deep. But in his effort to go deep, he's looking, and there is this crowd of people who are running along the shore. I mean, it is a tender moment to me to imagine, to be the Christ on the boat, looking at these people running around the shore, guessing where I'm going to land. And so Jesus sets ashore. He picks a hill, a nice grassy hill that would be good enough not just for the 12, but for the 5,000. Sits down. And in the other Gospels, we know. In John, it just says he sits down with his disciples. And the, and the story keeps moving. In the other Gospels, it says he sits down. And for the rest of the day, he teaches and heals because he has compassion. And I put that in front of us because I, I want us to see the Christ the nature of Christ in this story, 
that he has this leading love of people. He loves people so much. I mean, I'll add, I'll add to it. Do you know, the disciples come back, they meet him, you know, so he's, they're giving their man hugs and welcoming one another back. And you know one of the things the disciples tell him? This, is, this happens. This is what it says in, in Matthew. It says in the, his disciples, while they were on their missionary journey, Herod of Antipas beheads John the Baptist. And while the disciples are out on their missionary journey, two by two, they find out, they take the body, they bury the body, and when they return to Christ, they say, and the Baptist has been killed. And all of this is sitting in the heart of Jesus. Did you ever just need to get away? And he sees this crowd, and it says in the Gospels, he saw them, and they were as a sheep without a shepherd, and he had compassion on them. I think that's very important setting for this miracle, this sign for us, is to see Jesus, Jesus having this deference for the crowd. That no matter what's going on, even despite the desire to drill deep, have deep discipleship with these few people, on the, on the hillside are 5,000 people who haven't the foggiest idea of truth. Rather than going like to the 300 and 400 level class with these guys... He's drawn and says, they hardly even know me. And gives his day to the proclamation of the word. What he actually does is he does the site like on-the-job training discipleship. So instead of thinking of it as either or, like either I could spend time with the discipleships or I could proclaim the word, he proclaims the word with the disciples there, and amidst it all, he tests them. I think of this, I think of how often in the church our discipling ministries we extract away from the lost. Like, here the Lord seems to be doing it together. We learn, let me ask you this, how can you really, I'm not saying it always needs to be this way, but just think of it this way. How can you truly pursue maturity in Christ apart from deeply participating in compassion for the crowd, running along just to learn a little bit about them. Can you really be mature? At what point does your maturity begin to look like heresy? Do you always demand Jesus would be just for you? At some point, that deepness becomes shallowness. Here the Lord is, is doing them both. And it's in this setting it says the Lord looks up and he sees the crowd. And this is the fourth and fifth verses. He turns to Philip and he says, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Where are we to buy bread? Now we know this isn't Jesus learning. John wants us to know that. He says, listen, Jesus knew everything about it, all this. He was testing. That's what it's saying in here in, in the fifth verse. He says, he said this to test them, for he himself knew what he would do. But Philip turns to him and says this, 200 denarii are, are, would not even be enough to get them a little meal. Denarii, that amount of money is like six to eight months of wages. Okay, so Philip is saying it's not possible. Jesus has compassion on the crowd. 
Jesus is choosing to be with the crowd. He turns to his disciples and says, how are we going to feed them? And, and Philip says, it's, it's not possible. Essentially, if we had more money than we do have, we still wouldn't have enough to give them enough. You see, he says, if we had 200 denarii, it wouldn't be enough. And we still wouldn't be enough for just a little bit. He even mentions that even that amount would still not satisfy. I think in light of the later sections of John, where Christ ends up saying, I am the bread of life. I am the one who feeds unto eternal life. I am the sole satisfaction. I think in light of that, in light of that teaching of Christ, when we come back here and we look at Philip, and when Jesus says to him, how are we going to buy food? This is the truth that I think that begins to come climb out of the ashes, is there is no material way for the church to satisfy the lostness of this world. We don't have enough. In other words, the hunger, the problem with the hunger is really not a material problem. Let me say it that way. I'll say it another way. We could drill 10,000 wells in Africa so that everybody in Africa could have clean water and they would still die. We could vaccinate every goat. We could cure malaria. Typhoid, tuberculosis, yellow fever, we could put all of those things into the history books and everyone would still die. There is no earthly material. We don't have it. When the Lord looks out, again, think of what John has, Jesus has said here, what John's given us. I am the bread of life. When the Lord looks out at the actual need of the hillside and he turns to his disciples, their response is, we can't do it. And you're right. Jesus doesn't go, sure, look, here, empty your pockets. There, we got six denarii. How much more do we need? 194? He doesn't do that. They don't pursue this earthly. Jesus' answer is not simply, well, go down around and make a collection. It's essentially, you're right. You don't have enough. We don't have enough. And this is a trap. This is a trap, I think, or a challenge. Let's call it a challenge for the church. And I'm talking the grand church of Jesus Christ. I don't feel like we're this challenged here. I think our challenge is different. Um, I'm not saying that we're not challenged here for a bad reason. Maybe we should be more challenged here. But I think a challenge that comes to the church, especially a church that has compassion for the hurting and compassion for the lost, is to try to solve these problems and to miss the point of this sign. And to think if we could just rummage up enough denarii, we could solve the problem. I think the challenge of the church is to not fall prey to the lie that the real problem, re, problem really has nothing to do with how much money we have in our pocket or talent we have or skill or ability or any of those things. It is not related. Jesus does not need what we bring to the table. He doesn't need it. In fact, in this miracle, when he finally does multiply, he does not multiply the six denarii in the pockets of Philip. He multiplies what the crowd brings him. I mean, he has no need for what this church brings materially. In fact, what he ends up doing is using the disciples to distribute himself. That's what we do. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need what we have. He doesn't need... 
There is not a material answer to the hunger and appetite that God intends to solve. Only he can satisfy our stomachs in a way that will pull us through death to eternal life. That's the first thing we see. We see that there is no material way for God's followers to solve this problem. And then Andrew shows up. And Andrew, brother of Simon Peter, says, I found a boy here, and this boy has a few barley loaves and a few fishes. Now, this is a very poor part of the country, and this boy has a very poor meal. Barley loaves is bread of the poor, and there is, uh, John is clear, he's unique in his gospel to, uh, in the Greek, to make you feel the smallness of the meal. The word he used for fish there is kind of like a large edible minnow word. Sardines. And the word he uses for boy here is a double diminutive. It's not just boy, it's like a little boy. This is a happy meal. That's what's here from Captain D's. It's a Captain D's happy meal that's present in other words, what's, what the demonstration, and the Lord knows this. I just think the Lord is the best, isn't he? He's the best. The Lord knows this. He turns to his disciples and says, you feed them. That's what he says in the other Gospels. You feed them. And, and they, they say, we don't even have enough. We don't have enough, which is true, church. We don't have enough. We cannot feed the lostness of this world. Only Jesus can feed the lostness of this world. And when we get that messed up, we'll drill a lot of wells for dead people. So we can't do it, and, but then the image swings across the board to the crowd, and the evidence is, but the crowd actually needs it. We don't have enough, but the need is pretty significant. I mean, we can't do it, but wow, they need it. I think another challenge that comes to the church um, is related to this. I think sometimes we avoid the crowds because of our awareness of the scarcity. What I mean to say is, is we may be a church that knows we don't have it. And we may be a church that sees, but they need it. But we may, have been a, we may be a church that forgets that Jesus is it. What I mean to say is, is there's times when you can look out and see a level of brokenness out there and you're like, oh, I don't even know how to get my arms around that brokenness. I can't, I can't hardly even look at that brokenness. Right? Those of you who work, people who work in Wilmington know not to drive down 4th Street. That's because you don't even know what to do with 4th Street. And so what we end up doing is separating ourselves. We are so aware of the scarcity. We're so aware of what we can't do. And we're so aware of what's needed that what we do is we, we just act. Can we just send the crowd away? That's what the disciples do in the, in the other gospel. The report in the other gospels is the disciples went to Jesus and said, Jesus, it's getting late. Can we send them away so they can get a meal? In other words, we don't have the money to feed them and they have to eat. Can we just send them away? This question's coming to a man who's trying to get away 
saw them and had compassion. I mean, the church really, that can't be the response of the church to Jesus Christ. Can we send the crowd away? Lord, can we send the crowd that you've called us to away? That you've broken us up two by two and sent us to them. And now we're back and the need is so great. And this, I think the challenge here is the church forgets that it is not in scarcity. We are always in abundance. The church always it with the possession of Christ is abundant. We feel our scarcity. We feel like we don't know what to do there. And I feel like Jesus would say, well, do you know who I am? Because I'm not asking you to fix the problem. I'm asking you to serve me out. I'm not asking you to solve world hunger. I'm not asking you to solve peace with Al-Qaeda. I'm not asking you to figure out what global warming is or any of all of those things. I'm not at, what I'm asking you to do as my faithful children is to dole me out as a meal to the world. The, the Lord's saying, it's okay if you're in scarcity and if they're in great need because I'm the one who satisfies and your job is to carry me to them. And so Jesus takes the food and multiplies it. And I do find it, I, I find it usefully ironic that he takes the food the crowd has. You know, it, Loma reminds me of this, that the Lord starts with the amount of gospel that the people you're going to have and builds on it. What, whatever little bit is there, the Lord takes and, be, and multiplies himself through that. If you can just go... If you can find people who have just a little bit of the gospel, God can do so much. Have them sit down, he says. And he feeds them. I want to talk about one last challenge that comes to the church. And I, I think we're somewhere between the second challenge of feeling the, the relative scarcity and this other challenge, which is this challenge of not having enough compassion to see the sad truth. The challenge of, maybe the challenge of not being like Andrew, the challenge of just assuming they're good to go. I mean, the, the Lord's very careful to say the disciples don't have it, but boy, the crowd needs it. The crowd really needs it. And, and don't be confused. I, I don't, I'm not giving you social gospel. This is not about fixing the social ills in our town. Those things happen because of the life of Christ in people. Those things happen because the brokenness in, this, in our world and around us and all through us in this town and the next, everywhere you go, is linked to sin. And so when Christ comes in and begins to correct sin, he begins to work on things that are social and real and material. That's what happens. It just happens that way. And, and you, you are a sign of Jesus Christ. You're wondering, like, how can I be a sign of... You're the sign of Jesus Christ. And so when you go into those problems, the fact that you're... The fact that you have a functional family 
is a sign of Christ in this world. The fact that there are dads all the way down that hall teaching children is a sign of Jesus Christ that some people don't have. And so when we go in this, but I'm saying this is not, the challenge is not that we don't, have, we, we don't simply have compassion over their physical brokenness. I think we don't have compassion sometimes over their spiritual brokenness. I'm saying our communities, I don't care which one it is here, our communities have tiny morsels of the truth of God. A little bit. Not a lot. Your friends and colleagues, my friends and colleagues, their stories of Jesus are things that they heard on a Hallmark show, on History Channel, or something that their mom once said to them at a Christmas. They go to church two, three times a year. It's like a happy meal of gospel. Yeah, I just saw college kids. You know, the gospel is so scarce on that campus. You can feel it. Do we have a kind of compassion, right, that sees that and that is willing to park the boat and go up on the field and engage it? You really want to mature in Christ? If you really, really want to mature in Christ, you want to go deep with the Lord, I don't think it means you need a devotional in the morning. It's fine if you do these things. I don't think it's a morning devotional. I don't think it's speed reading the Bible in a year. I don't think it's memorizing the book of Habakkuk. I don't think it's having a fasting experiment. All these things are good. Okay, All these things are good and useful, and they may be right and timely in your life. But... uh, you really want to mature with Jesus Christ? Pray fervently for a compassionate heart that sees the lost like this. That will do it. Because that will thrust you into a place where you go, Lord, I don't have enough, but they really need it. And the Lord will say, you feed them. Give me to them. We sequester out the idea of evangelism as though we need to like study the methodology of evangelism. This is the theology of evangelism. The theology of evangelism is genuine compassion for the world. Genuine compassion for the world by people who possess genuine truth equals evangelism. The Lord gives so much of himself that there's a bounty at the end. This is what he's, he's, I feel he's preaching to us. I'm the bread of life. If you would just dole me out, you would find that there was more than enough of me to satisfy everyone. Maybe you're thinking, well, there's going to be people who, you know, people who don't come. Of course there's people who don't come. Jesus was not even all that effective all the time. The very next morning on the shore, there's people who just want a meal. They spent all day with Jesus and they still miss the boat. If he's not effective with everybody, don't worry. May we be a church. May we be a people who foster genuine compassion for the crowd because the crowd is, the crowd is around. The crowd is everywhere we go. 
and we have Christ. Amen. Let me pray.